Hello and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 11, part C, The Stand Chats. My name is Magellan, and they are 106 years old and still make their own bread. It's Mother Allen. Hello. <laughs> Actually, doing this impression is a form of entrapment, and I will not do it. Instead, I will say, hello, Magellan, and thank you for having me on the And show. that entrapment is why they call me the trash can man. Well, I'm gonna blow up a power plant. Yeah. He just wanted to catch magnemite really badly. I understand. <laughs> uh, that was a chemical plant. Like, uh, oh no, chemical plants from Sonic 2. Chemical mm-hmm. plants. Chemical plants. Yeah. You know that's Max Headroom. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some, you know, some very famous people in this particular show that we're what watching. What could it be? What could it be? So we here at Chats, you know what we do. We watch two episodes of a cult classic TV show and sometimes uh, a bad show, as is the case this time around, uh, every week, and we talk about them. And we are rounding out our season of miniseries discussions. We covered Vanity Fair, we covered Angels in America, and we thought we would wind down with uh, 1994's adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. So we watched parts one and two of the stand this week. First, we watched part one, the plague, and then we watched part two, the dreams. Alan, could you tell us a little bit about the plague? Sure, Magellan. The plague, uh, like all episodes of this adaptation, was directed by Mick Garris with a screenplay by Stephen King, who had direct involvement with this screenplay. Um, this one aired May 8th, 1994. And uh, here comes a summary provided by me, Alan. In this episode, In Northern California, a secret biological weapons lab creates a deadly virus with a 99.4% lethality rate. Security guard Charles Campion gets wind of this and attempts to escape the base with his wife and daughter. But he doesn't realize as he just unleashed this virus on the entire planet, beginning the pandemic that sets off the events of our story. He makes it to a gas station in Arnett, Texas, where he meets Stu Redmond who we quickly learn is one of a small handful of people who are completely immune to the virus, later dubbed Captain Trips. The government covers up the plague, telling people that it's a hoax and that everything is under control. However, we see over the course of this episode that that is not the case. We spend the rest of this episode following a few of the immune people around the United States. Stu is detained and tested on by the government, eventually escaping when they all die. Larry Underwood is an up-and-coming musician who witnesses his mom pass away in Queens before departing to find survivors. Nick Andros is a deaf-mute man who is beaten up by locals before meeting the sheriff and doctor of a small town. The doctor warns him about the virus and convinces him to escape to a cabin before dying to the virus. Meanwhile, a man named Lloyd robs a convenience store and sits in jail alone, uh, and he's followed by a mysterious black crow. Franny Goldsmith denies the plague until her father is killed by it. And then uh, her and her hopeless simp boyfriend, Harold, get on their bikes and ride away. (laughs) Stu, Franny, Harold, and Nick are all guided by mysterious dreams of an old woman named Mother Abigail in Nebraska, who instructs them to all come to her home and to make their stand and restart humanity. (laughs) Great. Awesome. Oh, man. (laughs) So we piloted the stand a few months ago. And at the beginning of season 11, we released that pilot on the main feed, edited together with the pilots of other shows that we covered. So... You've already heard a lot of our thoughts on the first episode, The Plague. Alan, I'm curious, as you watched The Plague for a second time, uh, first of all, would you recommend doing that? And second of all, were there kind of like major revelations or thoughts that you had about the second watch that didn't come up in the first one? Yeah. So I think I'm 
we mentioned in the pilot chats that we are both relatively new to Stephen King's work. Um, you know, we've appreciated some of his stuff in the past, and I have been known to enjoy a little bit of The Shining in my time. But <laughs> I'm not still getting, I still have not gotten used to the way that he blends very, very serious tragedy, violence, and heartbreak with the sort of homespun, silly 1990s comedy of mm, of mm-hmm. a, what I think permeates a lot of his work from that era. Um, and the stand is is guilty of a lot of that. It's blending a lot of different tones together um, back and forth. And I think the tonal whiplash was even more apparent watching this and then following it up with a, in uh, honestly a much sillier episode. Um, yeah, but when you really dig into this one, that silliness was there from the start. We just didn't know how much of it was going to occupy the series. Mm-hmm. So I liked it and I thought this one is great. But this time I wasn't as ready to fall for all of the virus stuff because I know like that's not going to be what the show is after this point. Mm. What about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we watched it together the second time because I just really didn't think I would have been able to maintain my focus watching it a second time on my own. And it turns out that I still didn't. And uh, I think I may have been falling asleep on our phone call. Did I snore at any point? Yeah, you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, you didn't snore. At least I didn't hear you. Okay, I was worried. I never fell asleep, but I, you know, I was like drifting here and there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were some some visual details and some little things that we caught up we caught on the second time, and I think some more kind of like mystery science theater type things to laugh at. But I agree with you that really the value to get out of this first episode, at least, is in the conversations around the virus and like how well it does or does not approach that. And I think my experience of watching that a second time was really just not even reflecting on that stuff anymore, but just being kind of bristled, feeling this bristling feeling when I see the guy in the mask or when someone says the word quarantine or when Gary Ed Harris's character, character is like, it's fake. Stop saying it's a real illness or whatever. Right. And then when Gary Sinise is like, I want to talk to a doctor in person for no some more reason. Telehealth. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm realizing that the phrase in person has taken on this, you know, yeah. very charged meaning. So it was unpleasant to revisit the the first episode of this, I would say. Yeah, it's it's difficult. And I wonder people watching it, you know, how much they knew the book at the time. Because the book had come out in 1978, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, worldwide bestseller extended edition had already come out, I think, pretty recently um, as of the miniseries. So people who know about Stephen King are coming into this like ready for what the story is going to become. So I'm curious then, like, how much of the book did this cover? Because at some point you're just like, I guess this is a story about people surviving a plague. How did (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know we? mentioned the documentary how to survive a plague in the last part of this season when discussing angels in america and i think that these two stories have some interesting things to say specifically like the stand pilot and mm-hmm. angels in america about like what it means to uh to be a survivor and to be somebody who persists despite overwhelming odds like that yeah. um from a government that doesn't care about you from a society that pushes you out and uh prioritizes other people uh, mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point the characters of The Stand found a government base where whatever, the go- there's like 100 government dudes that are like, yeah, we're fine. We just didn't tell anyone that we're hiding here. No one else can come here. Because mm-hmm. um, I know that Stephen King is coming from this sort of 1970s, 60s, hippie, liberal background. 
where you know you see a lot of his morality and and what he thinks is good and evil um right out of the gate with this pilot like which characters are going to mother abigail and which ones are falling for uh the dark man who we learn later is randall flag mm-hmm. this sort of chaotic devilish charming long-haired man who we described uh, before this call as uh, what if Bob from Twin Peaks uh, got yoked and talked too much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love that moral stuff. I think it it, it you get the seed. You're now that we've like seen a little bit more of it. I'm like, okay, so they were planting the seeds of you know Stu is like this holistically good guy, and and uh, you know Harold might not be able to be trusted even though he's with the good people. So it's not as cut and dry as like these are all the good guys and these are all the bad guys because I think hopefully King somewhat realizes that that's not how people work <laughs> in the, in the course of telling. The yeah. Story. Yeah. And I, um, I think, you know, with the f- first episode, I'm thinking more kind of like big picture in the things that, that we can be talking about. And it, it might sound a little, a little trite, but I would imagine the book is better. And of course. the reason that I say that is because the sense I get is that the, the book uh, I'm getting the sense partly from a so there's this medium article that I found called "The Stand Is Bloated, Racist, and Somehow Still a Masterpiece" mm-hmm. uh, by this guy named Ben Goldstein, and one of the things that I found reading that is uh, he's talking about how the way that the stand is written, you're kind of following like different individual characters for chapters at a time, and the miniseries, by having to turn that into a miniseries, you don't really get the interiority and the kind of flashbacks and stuff that you get with all these different characters uh, in the book. And so all of the characters are sort of boiled down to a stereotype of some kind. Like, mm-hmm. for example, did you know that uh, Nadine, who we meet in the second episode, is a school teacher? No idea. What? Yeah. <laughs> that just like doesn't come up in the show, but in the book you get extended flashbacks of her thinking about when she became a teacher and you know stuff like that and so i was reflecting on i think both that style of storytelling and how it's sort of underserved by the miniseries format Mm -hmm. and then also just reflecting on like uh i think what frustrates me about the first episode is that it really just feels like it's trying to explain how you go from like how you put Americana characters in a fantasy epic and make that make sense. (laughs) I think that's, uh, I think what you just described is Stephen King in a nutshell though. (laughs) Right. And it's just like, if you're going to do this, you can just make up a world or you can just say in a sentence like, Hey, there was a plague and now it's this, but instead us having to watch those events transpire uh, it's just like unpleasant. And ultimately I think because of the context of what we've lived through, it's kind of hard to stomach, like seeing a pandemic used as a narrative device to create, uh, to create a world that is like, so kind of mm, just like fantasy, you know? Do you think though, that include making it take place in America, uh, is valuable in some way though, for like relating us to these characters and, and, making it feel like this is a criticism of how America would handle a plague. Um, you know, this is coming out in uh, this, uh, the original novel came out in the seventies, like criticisms uh-huh. of America were abound at the time um, uh-huh. after between the Vietnam war and whatnot. And true. 
So I think that Stephen King, you know, chooses on purpose to do this. It does sometimes feel like he has one trick in his book where he's like, exactly like you said, what if America, but fantasy or what if America, Americana, but sci-fi. And it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. he is the, and I pun intended here, pun intended here. He's the king of that. But (gasps) you just now like seeing it from the uh, original, like the sort of like master of that style of writing mm-hmm. um you kind of just it feels samey it feels like things i've seen before now where i'm like yeah and like the walking dead clearly took huge inspiration for this and we'll talk later but like lost clearly took inspiration from this the idea of like people surviving despite their differences um mm-hmm. he's kind of like setting that that blueprint um but that's why i think the stuff on the margins is where i find it really fascinating like yeah um I want to start talking about one of my favorite characters from the series so far, uh, mm-hmm. Nick Andros, who's played by a very handsome Rob Lowe, looking great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, right at the top, we should say that there is a discussion to be had about the fact that Nick Andros is a deaf and mute character being played by a, a man who is neither deaf nor neither deaf nor mute. Um and the question of di- of disability representation there and how that's portrayed is you know, a, a challenging discussion that does need to happen. Um, I'm not here to say that we are the people that need to have that, but it's worth pointing out that it feels a little bit weird. Um, and the whole, like, yeah. he has a handy dandy notebook, like he's Steve from Blue's Clues, and he writes on and tells people things. And the sort of analogness of that, I think, is something also that Stephen King really likes, where he's like, oh, this guy has to write. And they play a lot, especially when he meets Tom in episode two with, like, what is it like just being a disabled person in America? Like they, the, sh- the, the story does care about that and mm-hmm. wants to, to pull a- at those strings, but it yeah. just doesn't feel equipped to do that in the same story. That's like the hell jeans jacket man wants the lady to run away <laughs> from her scary boyfriend. Yeah. I mean, just to speak to, to what you're, you were saying before and to this point, um, I, I do see the contextual, um, motivation for why Stephen King wants to tell the story about like the failures and corruption of, or the incompetence of the federal government being yeah. writing this in the late seventies. I think that's a useful context to put the story into because it definitely makes a lot of sense in that context. I mean, it makes sense in our context in 2021 also of course. Um, in different ways. Like I think we've learned over the course of living through COVID that it's more complicated than just the government as a whole is a bunch of corrupt liars. Obviously there's, you know, people involved in, in there's just like different actors at play and some people are corrupt liars and some people aren't or are kind of, (laughs) but anyway, so I think that that's a good point that you, that you made there. I think it, I would like, I think I'm intrigued by the idea of a story that takes Americana characters and puts them in the context of some kind of fantastical, you know, magical forces vie for the moral center of these people kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the problem is that the characters in this miniseries are just so archetypical to the point of not really being that interesting to me. Like, I think that we've seen i've seen characters like nick andros before the the man who's deaf or mute or whatever particular thing the author wants to place on that character and he's like 
the purely moral good boy who mm-hmm. gets kicked in the ribs by the the tough guys of the town. Um, but then he's nice to everybody and he always does the right thing. And it's like, is that interesting? <laughs> I don't, I don't know really. And I wonder if those characters are better developed in the book because it's a book and there's more time to develop them. But it, it really feels like all the characters in this particular miniseries are the sentence description of who they are. And I don't know yeah. that they really transcend that all that much. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that that's again a thing, something. Stephen King like plays around in a lot is these people are archetypes. They're not fully fleshed out detailed characters. They are all supposed to represent something, whether Nick is the, the holistically good person or Stu is the like blue collar average man uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, the South. And then, uh, you know, Larry is like the, the charlatan musician who like he has bad, poor morals, but wants to do good and, be, and make people happy. But, you know, goes about it in the wrong ways. Um, and it's kind of funny that Molly Ringwald is here because that's a very like breakfast club approach to ensemble yeah. storytelling yeah. of like, you've got the Bender's the, this guy and you've got the football Mark the Jean geek, guy. The nerd, the hot girl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I guess, you know, there are times where that sort of archetypical storytelling works really well and times where it it feels a little unsatisfying to focus Um, a little bit more on nick though um, sure 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 did you so did you enjoy these prison scenes with the sort of uh wacky doctor who wants people to take their shirt off and the (laughs) sheriff who classically is like it's not a disease (laughs) and then (laughs) i love this we laughed at this the second time watching it but uh the doctor comes back to talk to nick and and then he's like, where where did the sheriff go? And he's like, yeah, sheriff and his wife died. And you're like, oof, <laughs> yeah, it's so sudden. Like, yeah, they're both dead, uh, and we're probably gonna die too. Sorry. What do you think about that whole that that set that whole set? Uh, I think that scenes? I think that Nick definitely of all the characters that we meet comes from the like best rendered. Um, origin point you know because mm-hmm. molly ringwald is just like i'm hanging out with my nice dad and larry it's like maybe larry's got a lot going on there too but nick's sort of small town that he starts in feels very lived in and you can understand why this is the type of town where he would have the shit kicked out of him because the sheriff is like ah oh, man dang it that's my that's my sister's husband or whatever it was right she's gonna be angry about this and the doctor, you know, when this pandemic really starts to spread and take people, he's like, all right, well, time for me to leave. <laughs> Get out of here. Uh, I got a cabin. I'm going to go play Super Nintendo in my cabin. You want to come? <laughs> yeah. And he says something like, you know, I'm supposed to help my patients, but I'm not supposed to die for them or something like that. Why? Um, yeah. So I think that there's a lot going on here that that ends up making this town really interesting and mm-hmm. helps to clarify just how like unusual it is for Nick to be a morally upstanding good dude. Um, the fact that he will give the food to the the guy who beat him up in, in prison basically yeah, because it's the right thing to do. Right. Even as everybody around him is like just choosing to do not the right thing. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think I appreciated how detailed that particular area of the story was. It's, it's very well fleshed out. I think this first episode has the benefit of, of like most of a lot of humanity still being alive for most of it. So, 
you know, they can flesh out a setting not just with uh, set design or whatever or characters or, or visual storytelling, but also with other people talking. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I really liked that small town dialogue. I know the first time I watched it, I felt like, wow, this feels exactly like how people from this town would talk. And I don't even know where this town like I don't live there. But I think that then contrasts really nicely with um, Stu, who it sounded like you had some criticisms of this sort of portrayal gary sinise playing Stu as the like average normal guy who calls people hoss and he just wants to get out and be safe i want to start by saying bo that i find Stu to be kind of boring he's like the most boring yeah, character definitely. on the at least on the good guy side um, definitely it's i don't know if that's gary sinise's fault or what but i definitely did not like fall in love with Stu. like the book the story kind of wants me to the show wants me to yeah he he is just such a classic like white male protagonist whose thing is that he yells at the government guy and it's like mm-hmm. okay cool <laughs> good good job having a having a character there um i think he yeah i don't know i also don't know if that's gary sinise he's definitely not doing anything to like help it um yeah but i don't know if it's him or just the way that it was written for screen or what and i think i still really really am holding on to like I think he would be more interesting in the book. Yeah, I just don't really find him all that compelling. The part where he's being studied by the scientists at the Center for Disease Control or whatever in Vermont, and he's just mean to all the scientists, I understand why, and I understand that they're treating him poorly, but I also am not particularly invested in him as a guy. Exactly. Yeah, it's – you know, they show him the – the i can't, can't remember if it's a gerbil or whatever it is uh it's not a gerbil but the guinea pig that's what it is and they're like yeah that's geraldo and he's been breathing your air because we've been filtering your air like the feeling of being poked and prodded would naturally make somebody feel like a caged animal and so i think they mm-hmm. that's like a useful thing to compare him and, and show an animal next to him and then like you know 20 minutes later that animal is just dead and he has this preternatural ability to survive i think that's mm-hmm. all Stu has going for him so far is that he lived uh he seems like a good person he's not romantically attached to anyone yet mm-hmm. uh i do have a feeling that him and franny are going to end up together but that's just my guess yeah i mean the they're that... together on the posters and stuff yeah and harold f- fully sucks so <laughs> what can you expect uh yeah. you know I, I would hope that she's she doesn't end up with harold um but yeah so he he ends up leaving the facility in a very a scene very very reminiscent of the or or I guess the pilot of The Walking Dead is reminiscent of this, mm-hmm. where it's just like, oh, there's dead bodies everywhere. And he, like, gets the dream of seeing Mother Abigail, which we'll talk about, all those things. And, uh, you know, makes for his fortune. But, um, you know, I have a little bit less to say, too, about uh, Franny and Harold, uh, at least in yeah. this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more we see of both of them, the less Franny gets to do. It feels like this this story mm-hmm. does not know what they want to do with Franny as a character. Yeah. Right. Uh, because they know that, like, Harold is somebody who wants to be with Franny. He wants to not believe that the plague is real. And he just wants a lot. Like, he has strong wants, which is great in a character. Um, mm-hmm. But we know that he's young. He's very ignorant. Uh, he's very horny for a girl who clearly doesn't like him and tells him, I'm happy that we'll always be friends. You know, the classic, like, you know, say what you will about the term, but he's getting friend zoned there. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and. It feels like Harold is really ripe for being corrupted, whether it be by Randall Flagg or just by circumstance. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, like, um, to use a term, incel type of mm-hmm. thing, like that stereotypical 
I'm on the the forums now and now I'm an alt right guy or whatever. That's like who Harold is. Seems Exa- like exactly, exactly. And yeah. I, 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 we don't get a ton of either of them in this one, but shout outs by the way to the guy playing uh, Franny's dad. We mentioned this in the pilot chats, but Ken Jenkins, Doctor Kelso uh-huh. from Scrubs, is here giving the perform not the performance of his life, but a very good performance. Um, <laughs> uh, just quickly you know early on being like i'm in my garden and i love my garden and my daughter and she's so nice and she's like i'm gonna go to the rem concert with my real boyfriend jess um <laughs> in portland it's gonna be awesome rem concert in portland yeah i want to go to that po- concert real badly um and then you know one of the other funny things is right after the initial the opening you know that iconic scene where the cdc facilities overrun and don't fear the reapers playing they get they show an ad for I think it's I forget what it's called it's like Mister Flu or something, um, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a medicine that's supposed to be like the cure to this. It's it's not. <laughs> it's uh, green <laughs> nothingness. Yeah, it's like uh, what, what's that thing that people or emergency and everyone thinks that's so great or whatever. Yeah, but it's basically it's not. That. It's not going to cure your illnesses. Yeah, to I I think yeah, just to double down on what you're saying about Franny, I don't know that I could give you an adjective to describe her she's like really ignorant kind of yeah, or she's like I, blissfully because she's, she's she's like, like yeah naive or something naive. there's the word I there's the word i was I trying guess, to find the, like yeah. that exact word um because her dad is like don't you feel weird about everything going on she's like dad I, I feel fine i feel great even and it's like do you not know that like this is a thing going on i know you physically feel great but she like maybe she's a little self-centered at this point in the story i mean she's 21 the, I, I looked yeah. it up she's supposed to be 21 so she would totally be that. That's very much in line with the character. And I think Molly Ringwald does a good job portraying her as like, ah, this seems fine. <laughs> Thanks, Harold. A, bo- a boy wrote yeah. a poem about me and he's got unrequited love and that's great. But it's like, dog. So I feel like the book is, or the, sorry, I keep doing that. Um, I think that the series is going to chew her up a little bit and adds, it puts some grit on her backstory or, or make something really like, you know, do poorly yeah. by her, honestly. Yeah. Maybe. Or it's just not. And she's just going to stay like, she's the girl. She's the normal girl. And that's her yeah. story. Yeah. She just survives out of out of like stubborn resilience, basically. Because we meet some other female characters in um, episode two. Episode two mm-hmm. And there's not much more to any of them. Yeah. So, it, it really feels like kind of a, a flaw of the stand. Yeah. That there's like, they have... I mean, none of the archetypes are like that, you know, all that deep. But at least Larry, like, gets to be a douchebag. <laughs> and yeah. that's his thing. Like, if you're going to make Franny um, mean to Harold, she can be mean. That'd be something. She's if she's allowed. kind of, if she's just kind of like a mean girl, like a mean girl, means mean girls, mean girl <laughs> kind of person or like a yeah. valley girl type, whatever. I mean, that could be its own bad thing, but. At least she would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. She's definitely not interesting yet. Um, yeah, and very. It's, she's very similar to to Gary Sinise's character, where it's like, okay, we're just like the white protagonist, normal people, and I guess the story's about us or something. It's what I've started calling the Kong Skull Island effect. I know you haven't seen that film, but it has Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston as the two characters amongst all these like Vietnam soldiers, and they're like. Guys, I think Kong is serious and we should take him seriously. And everyone else is like, ha, ha, ha. And they all get brutally murdered. But, like, everyone else is more interesting. 
and John C. Riley's mm-hmm. in there chewing scenery. And then meanwhile, mm-hmm. you have these two who are like, we are good people and we must take care of Kong. And they yeah. suck, but they're the, they're the poster characters, right? Like, right. it just feels, it's frustrating when you read a, when you are trying to appreciate a story that has a diverse ensemble, but it just feels like the momentum of narrative wants to push these two people. It's like, stop trying to make fetch happen, that sort of thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, people I do want to see more of include my boy Larry Underwood, the best character in this episode. He's got the most going on, right? <laughs> yeah. He's, he's pretty he's, – he's the character that you like to see on screen because he's just going to do goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. We noticed uh, this time around that his <laughs> – even though his album is only at number 21 on the Billboard charts, and he mm-hmm. says that very proudly to his mom. He's like – not that 21. it's not an achievement, but it's not like the most impressive sounding thing. Uh, he's already changed his license plate. To say, dig yo man. Uh, like <laughs> Which isn't song. even a single. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just, I enjoyed that detail. So what do we think, what's the fate of Larry? Where is he going? I think we were, the second time around, trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be on the good side? Who's going to be on the evil side? Because you know, of course, that's how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I think we were saying Larry was going to be evil, but after seeing the second episode, it really feels like he is a character who's going to ultimately end up good, right? I, I hope think so. That's, I think that's how it goes. Maybe he My, sort of flirts with the evil or is evil temporarily, but I think he ends up as a good guy. He wants to be good, right. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of like I have retroactive spoilers because I know, like, they recast him. So part of the, his thing is uh, he's a singer. He's like, a, I don't even know what you would describe his genre as, but like folksy pop country almost, like, you know, radio popular. Mm-hmm country folky um he he goes to visit his mother in queens and i like that as soon as the apocalypse starts they go queens new york june 27th and there's just a car uh-huh. on fire and Majon and i were both like ah queens <laughs> <laughs> just like home um even though neither of us are from queens but Majon's mm-hmm. been to queens before mm-hmm. uh and I used to live in queens yeah not that part of queens oh yeah true true different part of queens I, I, I always forget about the old the old apartment <laughs> <laughs> Um, his mom initially, when she sees him, he's like, don't you like my song? And she's like, yeah, honey, you sound black. And you had a note about this from the book. Can you tell the kids what's going on here? Yeah. So in that same Medium article, um, the one, what was the title again? The uh, Stephen King's The Stand is Bloated Racist and Somehow Still a Masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, I found it because I was searching, I think I searched like, is Mother Abigail racist? Because I <laughs> wanted some more <laughs> sort of conversation around that particular character. And in that piece, there's more detail about Mother Abigail, who, you know, obviously she's like a really stereotypical, like magical Negro kind of trope yeah. character. But the that piece goes into more depth about some of the other problems with race that the stand has. One of them being that uh, it just uses the N-word a lot. And in this moment where Larry's mom tells him he sounds black on the radio, in the book, she uses the N-word, says, you sound like an N-word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not so good. And uh, there's other stuff in in there, like how in the sort of perfect society that Mother Abigail is trying to create, um, she is the only character that's described as black or how one of the few other black characters is like a drug addict character who's written speaking in vernacular um, yeah. 
AAVM. So there's yeah a lot of just not so great race stuff happening in in the stand. Again, one of the unfortunate uh, Stephen King isms um, is the the magical black person tropes and also the what else can we make them? Which is why I think it's important. When I was saying like retroactive spoilers earlier, I think the mm-hmm. fact that Larry's recast as a black actor in the remake of this, it's which right we ha- haven't watched and probably aren't going to watch because I've heard it's bad, um, mm-hmm. but I'm curious about it. Uh, I also watched a video that like shows all the differences, so I know a little bit more about it. But um, yeah, interesting choice. Good choice, I think. Mm-hmm. And suggest that they want him to stick around. Like you wouldn't just do that. You wouldn't recast that if he was a character who dies at like episode two or something. But they do kind of cancel out that goodwill by casting mother Abigail as Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. You lost all that goodwill. Sorry. Guys. <laughs> it's just like, okay, you didn't change that problem at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, a pretty glaring problem of the story that this, this book that is essentially saying, we're going to take all of these Americana tropes and put them into this struggle between good and evil, all of those tropes happen to just be white people from different places. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's, it's like all oh, the classic Americans, like white Texas guy, or white Queens guy, or white girl from the Midwest, or, right? Other white um, girl from the Midwest. Like, yeah, totally. Disabled white guy from the Midwest. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's... um. Yeah, it's it's really rough, and it's 1994, and they're uh, unfortunately in like popular television. Uh, you know, it seems like this is what uh, is is the standard, and it's frustrating. Not to say that there aren't plenty of great variations mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. time, but you know, uh, it's disappointing. And I think that's what you should have. They should have aimed for more in a remake. Is like, if this is going to be about like, let's take. You know, maybe the if we're to, to like broaden our scope of it with our discussion, mm-hmm. we'll talk more about this in episode two. But it's like, what do Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg want? Well, they want like all of these average Americans that they handpicked to survive the plague to form, you know, a coalition against each other um, and either fight or build against each other in a sort of like grand strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, those average Americans, there's no way that they would all be white. It simply doesn't make sense. It feels right. wrong. <laughs> right. So yeah. that kind of runs counter to what that plan would be, mm-hmm. um, especially because there's so many characters that are like weird or broken in some way. And it's like, but they're all still, they're all still white. It's so overwhelming. Yeah. Super frustrating. Uh, especially mm-hmm. again, because they mentioned like Larry's character as this like appropriative singer um, doing his best to sound <laughs> like quote unquote black, you know, it's mm-hmm. problematic at best. Um, but that, that about covers all of our main characters' position in episode one. They don't make a ton of forward momentum, but they're all heading towards Mother Abigail. Um, we do yeah. need to, briefly, I'll mention, uh, we meet Lloyd in this one. Lloyd uh, played amazing, wonderfully by Miguel Ferrer, the late and great man, Miguel Ferrer mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Um, My boyfriend, Miguel Ferrer. I love him. I love his 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 gravelly voice. I love his, his shiny head. Mm-hmm. Um, I love him in the car with his buddy. And... Um, yeah, we'll see more of him in episode two. Basically, in this one, he robs a bank, it or not a bank, excuse me, a convenience store. Uh, it kind of goes poorly, and he ends up in jail. Um, yeah. So that's where he is at. Uh-huh. Uh, Majan, what uh, what stray notes do you have for part one of the stand? Um, I made the realization seeing Ken Jenkins on screen 
that Ken Jenkins is like the good Ray Wise. Oh, so good. So true. <laughs> Just, you know, pull up some pictures or some clips of them acting next to each other. And yeah, Ken Jenkins is, is yeah, the good Ray Wise. I was really annoyed at how fake looking Harold's acne was. Oh. <laughs> it just felt like somebody took a marker and drew his zits on his face to be like, ah, oh, like yeah. three zits, like not even a lot of zits. Yeah. And we'll talk about them in the second episode, but it, I just couldn't get a read on how they were costuming Harold also because he shows up in the second episode covered in leather and metal studs. And his hair slicked back, but then he puts his nerd glasses back on to be yeah. like, oh, don't worry, he's still a nerd. It's like, who is this guy? I don't know. I so, guess the, I think the that place. the the leather stuff is just like they are riding motorcycles and they need them. But why studded? Yeah. And why did he slick his hair back? Like that stuff, I'm just like, this looks silly. Yeah. So that was, that was funny. Corin Nemec, the actor who played Harold was uh, 23 years old. So putting mm. acne on a 23 year old is a funny thing to imagine. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot in our pilot about the the musical, the needle drops in this mm-hmm. show. Uh, don't Fear the Reaper being the most iconic. So we don't need to revisit that. But it still is uh, weird and funny for that to hit. Better needle drop in that second episode. I got to say it. Uh, yeah, we'll talk, I hope, we'll talk about that. For I sure. hope every episode starts with one of those. Yeah. That's my, that's my goal. That's my dream for the show. Yeah. And then I really like the line... All the guys who are in Texas kind of ribbing each other. And then one of them's like, I need to feed your daughter, don't I? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's just funny to me. And I'm just like, all these guys are dead. (laughs) Whenever you do like this guy's a horny old man, they're just going to die in five, like less than Yeah, they're uh, they're definitely like one day away from retirement kind of characters. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about the second episode and talk about some of the characters that are introduced there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think... I thought that maybe there would be more kind of like pandemic-y things, but I really think we hit a lot of that in our first discussion of it. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately ends up, the more you watch it, feeling like the set dressing of the apocalypse um, cool. instead of uh, – and it, it is kind of frustrating that Stephen King's sort of presentation of of it really just is – it was a government conspiracy. They tried to cover it up and they're grossly incompetent and everybody who works for the government is evil because there's like – there's a good story in there and there's a lot more nuance in there. But it just seems like the show and the story is not at all interested in exploring that because it wants to get to this kind of like epic fantasy <laughs> showdown thing. <clears throat> I think this episode is the pre-apocalypse and the rest of the show is during an apocalypse Yeah, because – this episode, you get the news, you get uh, that great scene in the radio, uh, in the radio building that we spoke about in our pilot chats, uh, where Kathy Bates is, at, in, you know, barged in on by the military and then killed. Mm-hmm. It's a very dark scene, but a very good scene nonetheless. Um, and I consider that all to be pre-apocalyptic. Uh, because you also, like I said, the, the government being like, it's not, uh, uh, this suit, this so-called superflu is, is just that, it's fake. Um, but then in the second episode, you get like, okay, what if the world was empty now? And that's uh-huh. how you get stuff like uh, uh, Larry and Nadine in the restaurant is like, yeah. oh, okay, now we're in it and we can just deal with an empty world. Like, it's kind of like they emptied the world out so that they could tell a story. It's not right. like they could tell a story about why the world is empty. It's just like that was the dressing for the story to now begin. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Yeah, I agree. And I just think from a storytelling perspective, it's almost more interesting if you just start with the empty world. Yeah. Like when I saw the scene 
of Larry and Nadine in the in the fancy restaurant eating steaks that they cooked for themselves or whatever. It really just reminded me of The Last Man on Earth. Yeah. And kind of made me just want to go and rewatch The Last Man on Earth because I think they do a great job. Well, they they do a mixed job in yeah. that show actually of but the first episode is incredible, yes. right? Because it's just okay, the world an apocalypse happened. Anyway, here's this guy who is now living a life there and I I don't know, I really enjoy the aesthetic of like the world is empty, cars are still on the road. And now I'm like bowling with a flamethrower or whatever the heck I feel like doing in the middle of the street. That stuff I I actually think is cool um, or them in the restaurant I think is cool. Um, and it's just kind of a, a bait and switch that the stand does that if nothing else, you should just be prepared for it. That they really uh, – they tell this story of a pandemic hitting that at times is like very real and very well rendered and, and very emotional so that they can get to that other thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Man, I really want to watch Last Man on Earth again. But just the good parts, not the boring parts. We could chat it. It's over, right? It's over. It's super canceled. Yeah, we could pilot it at least. 2015 to 2018. I think I only watched the first season. Oh, wow. Yeah. It gets so weird. But I don't know. We'll talk about it. But um, yeah, yeah, that's the stand part one, the plague. Uh, Magellan, if that's all, then we will be right back to discuss the stand part two, the dreams. To the Stan Chats. We're here to talk about part two of the 1994 Stan miniseries, The Dreams. <laughs> it was directed by McGarris and written by Stephen King once again. And this one aired May 9th, 1994. Magellan, first of all, um, welcome back. But, yeah, by the way, I don't know if you can cut this out if you want, but we are recording this episode on the, let me do the math. 27. The 20, no, 26? 26. I'm turning 27 this year, and I was born the same year that The Stand came out. Hmm. <laughs> but no, no, no. Hold on. Let me think. Yeah, maybe you're right. Is that right? Do 2021 minus 1994. Seven. Yep. Okay. Thank you. I know how old I am. <laughs> I hope I do. I was doing the math wrong. We're recording this on the 27th anniversary of this episode coming out. Yes. I'm proud of us. We did it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. What happened in the episode? In this episode, Larry meets Nadine in New York, a strange young woman who initially accompanies him until they are split up when he yells at her for being too anxious to traverse the pitch black Lincoln Tunnel. Uh, They reunite and almost make love, but the dark man, who we learn in this episode is named Randall Flagg, tells her to leave Larry in a dream. 
Alone, Larry carries on until he reaches Des Moines, Iowa, where he meets Lucy Swan and Joe, a young kid, who is, you know, there's something up with Joe, but we don't know what. Mm. They let him know that Des Moines may have been destroyed intentionally. <gasps> oh, interesting. Franny and Harold find some old records to soothe their spirits after Franny buries her father in the backyard. Stu meets Glenn Bateman, a kind old painter who accompanies him to meet Mother Abigail. They run into Franny and Harold along the way, forming a fun little squad. But Harold is jealous that Stu is nice. <laughs> and, yeah, and he's only basing it on that pretty much. Um, and Franny might like him. Despite Stu's advice, they explore the Stovington CDC facility, facility nearby, finding nothing but death and decay. Glenn suggests that Abigail is a magnetic person and they should use her as a true north to find safety. We're also introduced to Trash Can Man, a strange character who blows up a power plant and is guided to Las Vegas by Flag. In prison, Lloyd subsists on live rats until Flag shows up at his cell. He makes Lloyd promise to stay by his side no matter what before freeing him and guiding him to Las Vegas, Nevada, the home of all sin and evil, of course. Of course. Nick meets Tom Cullen, a mentally disabled man who laid several mannequins around town in an unsettling scene. They quickly become friends, and they travel by bike to meet Mother Abigail. Along the way, Tom gets sick from eating unripe apples, and Nick stops at a pharmacy to get him medicine. Inside, he meets Julie, who's been alone for days and makes overt sexual advances at Nick while insulting both him and Tom for their disabilities. They eventually escape by bike as Julie takes some pot shots at them from a window. On the highway, they're picked up by a man named Ralph. The two of them and another family arrive first in Hemingford, Hemingford Home, Nebraska, where they sit down at dinner with Mother Abigail. She says it is time to make a stand. Literally, that's what she says. And they await more survivors. But over the hill, a parade of bikes approaches. Welcome to the stand part two, everybody. It's time to get silly. So this episode actually wasn't... I've been kind of like... Not bearing weight, I don't know what the term is here, but but not showing my hand. While it is a little bit less grim than episode one, we're not getting like people denying a plague or anything like that. This feels much more like what this show was well, sold to me as, which is just people trying yeah. to survive and mm -hmm. traveling and seeing America falling apart and uh, seeing the sort of evil that is humanity. Um, right. I think it's very straightforward in that way. It wasn't too weird to me, but. Also, it, I feel like it's taken, it's, I can't believe it's taken them two out of the four parts of this miniseries mm -hmm. to get to the place. And now it's yeah. like, well, what are you going to do at the place? Is that what the show is? Was getting there the show? I'm, I'm a little confused about where the structure is going. Yeah. So another thing that I read in that same medium piece, it was talking about how the, the various um, people who've handed off the project that would ultimately become the 2020, the 2020 uh, version of The Stand but, you know, all these different uh, directors who at one point were asked to perhaps direct an adaptation, a film adaptation or a TV adaptation, like Ben Affleck at one point was potentially mm -hmm. going to do it and then was like, actually, I'm going to go be Batman instead. Um, wow. There were other people in the mix whose names I can't remember, but you can read that piece to see the story. Um, but something that, the, the, that Ben Goldstein, the guy who wrote that piece, makes clear is that what's really hard about adapting The Stand – is, oh, the director of the, like, first Harry Potter movies, maybe, or some of the later ones, actually. One mm -hmm. of the Harry Potter movie directors at one point was going to do it, too. Right. Um, and something he makes clear in the piece is, like, it's 
pretty easy to adapt Harry Potter to the screen because there's action in it. But the yeah. stand doesn't have any action. It's just a lot of people going to the place and having these kind of like mental struggles. They're dreaming about the good and the evil forces. And there's it's these kind of individual characterful, characterful morality stories when it's at its best. And when it does those things, it's really cool. Like when Lloyd is talking to to uh, Randall Flagg in his cell and you see Randall Flagg convince him to be evil, it's like, oh, man, this is actually kind of compelling. Yeah, right. Um, but there there is no action. There's n- nothing particularly cinematic about this story um, because it's such a slow burn and so much of it is happen- happening in the process of like traveling across the country. So I, I agree with you. And what I think is, and, and I agree with the piece, obviously, but uh, what ends up bumming me out about this miniseries, and I noticed it very much in this episode, is even though we're focusing and zooming in on like characterful moments, I still feel like we're rushing past some really crucial development that would have helped yeah. me a lot more. Yeah, um, definitely. Almost every plot line feels like it jumped ahead and we missed the part where they became friends in this. Um, sure. You know, Larry and Nadine is like that. Franny and Harold, I guess we can understand that they because they knew each other since they were kids, I think. Uh, yeah. They. She was his babysitter at one point, I think. Oh, is that was that said at some point? That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if I read that somewhere or they said it or what, but I think that's the case. That definitely tracks. She has that. There is that sort of relationship. But, you know, the episode actually opens with, like we said earlier, another needle drop. Um, and. So they're listening to uh, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. She finds an old record player. Really bleak that he comes over and she's like, take this bag. And he's like, oh, I got you. And it seems like he thinks she's moving or something. And he's like, it's my dad. And then he goes, oh, (laughs) wait, (laughs) that's Ken Jenkins. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And going from that bleakness to like, let's just listen to music and like exist with each other for a moment um, Mm -hmm. was really touching. But then I'm like, meanwhile, Larry and Nadine are already friends in five minutes. Like, it just feels like the balance of, like, the different characters and how they get to know each other is so off. Uh, Yeah. It's very jarring. And I think what I was finding as I was watching this is that I honestly – and I want to talk to you about the sort of conclusions that I came to in the process of this. But things like Larry and Nadine meeting or even the moment where I thought of it specifically was when I saw Larry – playing his unplugged little concert to a road full of (laughs) of empty cars. Um, And I was kind of like, you know what? I think this would have been way better if it was just a longer show, Um, if it was just like a full-length show. And then I was thinking, well, they've actually probably done that show a few times as The Walking Dead maybe or as like uh, The Leftovers Mm -hmm. perhaps – um, and also maybe as, uh, like lost <gasps> potentially. And I was re I found this article that was a conversation between the writer, the creators and writers of lost and Stephen King. And in the conversation, because I had this thought of like, wait a minute, characters and you see their backstories and it's actually more about them than it is about the bigger forces of good and evil. I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? Oh my God, that's lost. Yeah. Yeah. And in the conversation, 
they are talking to Stephen King about how basically Lost was inspired by Stephen King stuff to mm-hmm. a certain extent. And they were talking about specifically the character of Charlie in Lost when they were auditioning. They were like, wait, maybe this character is a one-hit wonder kind of musician guy like Larry Underwood from The Stand. Boom. So there's actually like a lot of of uh, The Stand's DNA in Lost. So I'm curious if you, being the Lost fan, uh, were feeling similar vibes or if you think that that connection holds up. Yeah. So Magellan obviously has now reeled me in with a big cartoon fish, and now I'm going to bite it and, and talk about Lost for like 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I, I caught the fish, and then I threw the fish on the hook back out into the water to catch you. It's like they say in Jaws, there's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish. Exactly. So Lost is one of my favorite shows. For people who are new to chats or don't know me, I'm fully on my BS right now. Um And it's one of my favorite shows because it's about characters. It's about people who are broken, who struggle to come together and reconcile their faith with their goals and desires in life. Um, And they learn that it's worth loving each other and caring about each other and working together instead of being uh, self-serving, self-sufficient, because that's how we survive together as a people. Wow. Uh, The Stand is about that, too. The difference is that I like the characters in Lost. Mm. And I definitely agree that this would work better either as a, like me, like we said before, as the book. Or just as a, like, multiple season television show. Like, you could sit in these characters' lives and do way more flashback stuff if you had the time. Um, And maybe this is the Lost fan in me, but I totally think that this show would do better if we had seen more of them before. Um, Because that's what Lost does, is it devotes, like, entire episodes almost to individual characters, right? Right. And it's almost like Lost is a better show than this. (laughs) Um, And because it has the time to do that. And I know this is a miniseries and, you know, times are different, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And Lost has its own problems, too. As people say, when it starts to focus on that mythology and what the good versus evil battle actually means, it starts to get kind of poo-poo caca. But when it's about the characters firing on their cylinders and, like, here's the big difference, right? right? Larry is, I I said before, he's kind of a charlatan. He's using the musical stylings of african-american singers to further his career Mm -hmm. uh and he's a a lecherous dude he is you know he doesn't care about consent that much uh Mm -hmm. he's definitely racist he is super misogynist charlie's like lovable to a fault and he has problems and he is kind of a broken person but he deserves you know deserves love and care it's also the problem here is that it's way more clear in the stand that the good and evil forces are pulling directly Whereas in yeah. Lost, the good and evil forces are, like, not personified until much later. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine if in The Stand, we didn't know who Mother Abigail or Randall Flagg were until, like, the last 30 minutes. And then we, like, mm. got the, all the scenes of them talking and, like, making each other bleed and all that crap. And then you're like, oh, that's what's been happening. Again, I think is something to Lost's, Lost's favor is that it doesn't, like, show the grand picture uh, until later it suggests it and lets you examine it and think back on it but right you know that's from that 2006 era of television where it's like you're gonna rewatch this you have dvr now you're gonna think about it whereas the stand is like okay you guys already know it's the stand it's it's stephen king let's just get into it mm-hmm. um and that's not to just fully poo poo on the stand i think that you know choosing to to give us these characters and say that these are the good ones and these are the bad ones intentionally draws a morality line that lost kind of doesn't yeah it does in brief moments but it doesn't become about like what's the good faction what's the bad faction i think the stand more so wants you to think about what that morality means and why these people got swayed and turned back or one way or the other Mm -hmm. um, for good or bad reasons so yeah 
I think those are the core differences. Um, but I like to stand for what it's trying to do. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's a, an interesting, it's an interesting comparison to make and to just see the, the benefits and drawbacks of both because the problem that Lost ran into, as I understand it, is because it held the mythology so close to the vest, that actually ended up distracting from a lot of the characterful stuff that it was trying to do because I feel like the only conversations I ever heard about Lost were about the drip feed of details about, you know, what's going on here? What are the kind of like mysterious forces at play, which isn't what the show is should be about, right? Yeah, the stand just um, says like, what if we showed you those guys in minute one? Don't worry about the mystery. Right. And, and the that's stand the J.J. Is, Abrams effect, obviously. Yeah, the stand is like, hey, there's a dark man and he's evil. He's the dark man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's covered in rats <laughs> and he turns into a crow. He's bad. <laughs> he's a giant rat who makes all of the rules. Yeah, right. That's a good uh, YouTube reference right there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, but then, yeah, the other – the problem when you aren't nuanced – is then you're drawing this big line down the middle of the ensemble and you have to sort of say that characters are on one side of that line or the other. And I think this episode demonstrates the ways in which drawing that line end up ends up becoming kind of like problematic or just you have to make decisions uh, that ultimately maybe your audience might feel differently about the way that you're doing that morally than, than you do. Like for me, for, for instance, I think a frustration that I have with how this show decides to draw that line is it ends up feeling very just kind of run of the mill Christian morality of like Mm. the people who go to the bad side are the people who are like sinful or have Mm -hmm. vice or something like Lloyd is a guy who was, uh, greedy or a criminal or whatever and he's ending up with the dark man or julie is like a little too horny and so now she's gonna be a bad guy you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so that kind of stuff i think is frustrating um because you want to see there be a little bit more nuance in how it decides who's good or evil and maybe there's going to be swapping between sides and you know more going on in future episodes, but yeah. So speaking of that ensemble, I think we might as well dig into uh, the characters we know and the characters that we meet in this episode. Does that sound good? That does sound good. Okay. So let's start with Franny and Harold. Um, so Leather we talked mommy a l- and daddy, please. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about them. And I think we mostly wanted to talk about them in this episode in the context of a wonderful uh, needle drop that we started to talk about. Maybe you wanted to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, they start the episode on uh, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. As uh, as Franny is listening to it, she finds the old record player. She leans on Harold. He's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm so fucked up. I'm going to kiss a girl finally. <laughs> you dumb simp. Harold sucks. <laughs> I hate Harold. I hope he joins Randall Flagg and then they all get nuked or something. Yeah, he's almost certainly going to be evil, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. He's going to stay in the leather, though. That's actually the real secret reason they put him in the leather is because all the bad guys get to be in leather. <laughs> yep. Because as we know, leather means evil. Um, so right. sorry to all of my uh, dominatrixes out there, but you're all villains and we love you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Step on me, please. Please, please. Thank you. Just kidding. Oh, yeah. They don't get too much to do. 
they um but they do get to meet our sort of boring protagonist boy they get to meet Stu, um yeah. and uh in their travels they run into him and his his sort of like uh jrpg party uh <laughs> yeah which are uh Stu, his his old painter grandfather glenn and yeah. their do- his dog kojak mm-hmm. uh and the four the three four five of them if you include kojak five, five. Five, yeah, five. You Kojak. I was reading that Kojak actually gets a moment of internal monologue in the book. You're kidding. <laughs> from, I'm not kidding. Good book. Okay. A bit from the dog's perspective. So then, yeah, our five characters are like, I guess we should go where these dreams are taking us. Is it implied then that Franny's also having the dreams? Yeah, I think everybody's having the dreams. Even Errold. Even Glenn. I think, yeah, literally. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Glenn definitely is says to Stu, like, yeah, you. Dream about that lady who still makes her own bread or yeah. whatever. Um, but we do learn that some characters, like that some characters experience the dreams differently mm-hmm. from each other. So I don't know. But it's implied, I think, that everybody's having dreams of some kind. Yes. And I think that um, even though I don't, Glenn doesn't get a ton of fleshing out here. It's cool to have an old man character. This isn't all just a bunch of mid-20 people. Uh, yeah, like, I love Glenn falling in love with each other it's just like glenn is not worried at all that the apocalypse has happened he's just like i'm gonna keep painting i'm sitting on this bridge i got my dog glenn is mm-hmm. exactly how we want to handle the apocalypse yeah and i love that we meet him he's like singing larry's song but he doesn't know the tune yep <laughs> it's, it's very charming also glenn is played by greg kinnear in the remake which is perfect casting incredible uh, incredible yeah. casting um i i was making myself laugh thinking about the moment where Stu and Glenn and Kojak meet um, Franny and and Harold mm-hmm. and Harold immediately doesn't like Stu because he's another man D- and then Stu pulls him to the side and has this conversation of like relax man I'm, I'm not gonna you know blow up your spot with this lady but I really wanted him to <laughs> say like hey look at who I'm with you see this guy He's a painter. He's kind. He's smart. He's funny. He's a silver fox. What do I want to do with your with this lady? Why would I? Yeah, I I, say, he's got a dog. Did you see the dog? I, I'm with the perfect man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about your boring girlfriend who hates you. You simp. Go do whatever you want. I'm gonna get take these beers out of the river, and me, Glenn, and Kojak are gonna get drunk on the porch, which is exactly what happens. Yeah. If I if I were to remake the stand, I would make the Stu Glenn romantic relationship textual and not just subtextual oh and they just say we don't even need to go to mother abigail we're just gonna live in the in the the countryside we're just gonna paint each other oh i love it i love Mm -hmm. them this is basically call me by your name um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i i was surprised at how quickly harold turned not surprised in the sense that i know how this this archetype goes but surprised Uh in how just how Uh quickly he's like I don't trust that guy specifically. I don't trust these people, but especially that man over there. And it's like, dog, yeah. we get it. You like her and you think he's more handsome than you and he's charismatic. Mm-hmm. He's going to take your girlfriend from you. This is fine. Yeah. You can, you're going to live through this, pal. Uh, it's funny that there's a character named Nick in the show because he's kind of this. Harold here is like the Nick from Freaks and Geeks, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're like, why can't I be simp? Um I love it to imagine that people don't know what the hell the word simp means. Just Google it. I'm sorry if you're, you know, not in the same internet circles that we are. It's okay. You'll be all right. Also, I, I, I resent the use of the word simp exclusively negatively. 
In there, this case, it's definitely negative. But yes, yeah. there's positive. I guess there, there's positive simping. I think there is. Uh, I simp you. Anyways. Um, I simp you. So they're all going to Mother Abigail. They don't reach her in this episode, though. But we just ne- we get some nice, like I said, them drinking beers, them talking about, like, sh- again, Glenn mentions that Mother Abigail is, quote unquote, a magnet. And we are all gravitated towards her and we should use her as a true north so that we can go to the right place. We'll know where we're going. Follow her. It's about religion, guys. Did you get it? It's about faith <laughs> and God. She li- she literally is singing. uh what a friend we have in Jesus. Yeah. At one point. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the visions, there's a brief vision where Randall Flagg comes. Not, it's not even a vision. I think it's just actually, it happens. Um, Randall comes to her cabin through the cornfield, surrounded by rats. And she's like, get away from me here, you godless man. And well, she sings what, we, what a friend we have in Jesus. And he like kind of teases her and then says, I have your blood, Abigail. And he clutches his hand and she starts bleeding out of the hand that's playing the banjo or whatever, the guitar. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just creepy and bad and scary and I was worried about her I'm concerned for Mother Abigail yeah I'm wondering exactly what their connection is like are they connected in some way is that why he can do that I guess it'll be explained later I was thinking about Majora's Mask yesterday I was up late, late playing Majora's uh-huh. Mask because uh-huh. um, I'm interested in, in in maybe catching up to it for your next episode of super smash echoes yeah and, which is out by this point by the way oh heck yeah hey guys check it out super smash echoes it's on mm-hmm. everywhere you listen to podcasts mm-hmm. um and i was thinking about like the themes of that game and like why certain things happen and trying to pull apart the logic and i think for that game it definitely benefits you to think about like wait why are there time paradoxes here but in this show I don't think it's beneficial for me right now to be like, why can Randall Flagg, for example, just go to Mother Abigail's house? Why doesn't he just kill her? Like, to CinemaSins, this would be really a worthless endeavor. Right. So, I but I'm still so curious, like, what was going on there? And is there anything that we need to pull thematically from that? Or is that just like, he has power over her and he could kill her if he wants to, but maybe he chooses to do it with his uh, constituents, if you will. Yeah, I I guess they'll either answer it or they won't, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Randall Flagg as a villain? Because we've only seen the Dark Man as jump scares, and then yeah. we find out that he's also a dude who has like beautiful flowing locks and uh, rippling <laughs> musculature. Um, he's like a I don't know an eighties movie protagonist or like a yeah. like a hair metal band frontman or something. Um, and also, I was reading and I learned that Randall Flagg is actually this, like, sort of recurring universe-connecting Stephen King character. He shows up first in The Stand, but then he's also in the Dark Tower series and something else, too, mm-hmm. um, which is surprising to me. Uh, but I was curious what you thought about him as a as a villain. So... It's interesting. It, I don't want to keep saying interesting, but it's what what I enjoy about Randall Flagg is the sort of like this is where I think that Stephen King misses the mark for what we think is evil. Because in his head, he's like, "What's what's pure evil? It's like this this silver tongued, handsome, traditional man with long hair, greasy features." Mm-hmm. Like the comparison to Bob and Twin Peaks is not off at all. There, they are similarly right. attired and they have similar hairstyles, uh, but he's young and. He's supposed to be really good looking. They got they hired a relative unknown at this point for mm-hmm. the, the role of Randall. Um, but if you look at the guy who plays him in the remake, I think it's it's a Skarsgård. I don't think it's Stellan Skarsgård, but it's one of the Skarsgård brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they clearly understood that like what Stephen King wanted was for you to be like this is a one of those like men who would lie to you about a business or something. Like Yeah, he's like one of the guys on TikTok who pretends to be a vampire. Oh TikToks God. or something. Like oh, a hot God. vampire boyfriend. Kind yep. Of thing. Or like a boyfriend role play guy. Yeah. Randall Flagg is just an e boy, I guess. But like a mature e boy. Randall Flagg e boy. There you go. You manifested it. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's like that's an archetype that fits into a lot of things. Like don't trust these young, hot men who try to manipulate you and lie to you and and like the way i think if the show does or the series like has any sort of failing then with the moral stuff it's that they only visit mother abigail because she's a voice in their dreams and Mm -hmm. they only visit and they only work with randall flag because most of the time because he just tells them to he says to the trash can man come to me but the but honestly randall flag has more he's like more appealing to their darker impulses Whereas, yeah, he's Mother much Abigail more... is just like, do it, because it's good. You'll do it. Yeah, I think that ultimately is something that's dissatisfying about The Stand, is if you're going to have this story that is, if the whole point is not to have a big kind of like Lord of the Rings fight, but instead the point is, it's all of these people who are on this journey, and they're reflecting on their lives and and having these visions and stuff and they're having to make a decision about what to do. You want that decision to be more interesting than like you're saying, join the Jesus lady, the old kind grandma, Jesus lady, or or, the devil. Yeah. Or join the devil. And I think the only character who I was really interested in their sort of decision in that regard in this episode was Lloyd because Randall went to him directly and had a conversation with him manipulating the circumstances of his life uh, and saying something really interesting where he's like, hey, I choose you to be like my right-hand man. Has anybody ever done that for you in your whole miserable life? Has anybody ever chosen you? He says, I pick you. Anybody done that for you in your whole miserable life? Yeah. And Lloyd is like, no. No. Nobody has. So I will follow you to the ends of the earth just because you picked me for something. Yeah, wait, the implication that Lloyd uh, is just, he's always been self-sufficient. He is a criminal. We don't know his backstory or why, but he he mentions before even meeting Randall that, or they find out, uh, Randall knows this as like, just from his knowledge that like Lloyd has been eating rats. He's been eating live rats because he wants to survive. He's all about living. He's all about number one. And for once, somebody's like, what if I helped you? What if you had a person who asked you to be their friend, who asked you to be their companion and whatever in, in their bigger plans. Don't you want to be part of something bigger? Mm-hmm. And so like seeing him appeal to a character's base instinct is great. That's like, that should be what this whole show is about. It's like, well, why right. do people join one side or the other? Uh, you know, maybe Nadine just gets dreams where Randall Flagg is like, come to me because, uh, you know, we're going to get married or whatever. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like he actually appeals to any sense of her because we also don't know who she is, <laughs> right, <laughs> is the right, thing. Right. And then again, none of the characters going to Abigail are doing it for anything other than a sense of like, I guess it is sort of like he, she's also providing a purpose. But mm-hmm. right now the purpose is just come here, there's food, come and get y'all juice. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I want to see that come out a little bit more and... I just feel like the show doesn't have time for any of that. If we're going to get all these like 15 minutes of trash can man scenes, and I do like trash can man, then I don't <laughs> think we have time to I'm fill out trash can man. That's the character I would cosplay if I were to play this. Um, 
<laughs> so that's that's Matt Frewer. He's uh like I said earlier, Max Headroom. Max Headroom. Yeah. Um, not much to say about Trash Can Man. Um, he runs through the desert. He's all gross. He finds I think it's a power plant or a chemical plant or something, and either takes something from it or plants something there or both, and then blows it up and runs away. And he's all gleeful. And then Randall Flagg comes in his head and is like, "I'll provide you purpose and sucker or whatever. Come to Las Vegas." Mm-hmm. He gets there and he sees Lloyd and all these other toughs. And and he packs- was not. He was not in the first episode, right? Correct. He's just introduced in this completely cold. That's so weird. <laughs> and he's That's like a major so character. That's so strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. Adaptations are hard and weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't have much to say about Lloyd or Trash came in other than they're now both in Vegas. And I still love Miguel Ferrer so very much. Mm-hmm. And I think his interactions with Randall were, were really good. Um, At first... For the first two seconds after I learned that Vegas is the headquarters of the evil people, I was like, okay, yeah, you're saying something there. And then I was like, no, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not smart at all. That's <laughs> that's that's like third grade. Like what's a source yeah. of like evil and and all of humanity's worst impulses? Yeah. And it goes back to the issue that I have, which is like evil is sin. Yeah. And it's like, is, isn't there a more... Can't we nuance. come up with a new way to think about evil than yeah. just like the way that Dante's Inferno thought about it? Exactly. Uh, which it, it wasn't even about evil. It was just about hell. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I do. I do. Um, yeah. I think the Vegas stuff is going to get super goofy. I like this version of Vegas. I can't tell if they actually filmed in Vegas. I know. I mentioned in the pilot chats that when they did Times Square stuff with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's character, not uh-huh. super, not worth bringing up again, but he does make a brief appearance in the first episode saying bring out your dead before he's killed uh instantly by randall mm-hmm. <laughs> um and how they had to like film his his like tallness by pay- pointing the camera up so that they wouldn't show Times square and get in trouble for filming somewhere expensive mm-hmm. um you know i just think that las vegas as a location is great you don't see a lot of vegas these days in tv and movies but it's fun i think like vegas as a setting can be fun yeah but as the epicenter of evil i'm just like uh what <laughs> okay <laughs> there is a an episode of All Gas No Breaks, which is a YouTube channel I chat some a long time ago, where right before the pandemic, he went to Vegas at like four in the morning and just walked around and talked to drunk people. And mm-hmm. that is Vegas culture. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Larry and Nadine for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So this this plotline went cool places. Larry's now in the in the heart of New York City, hmm. um, for a little while at least, and uh, he meets this woman named named Nadine, who seems a little strange. I wrote in my summary that she just seems weird. So far, we don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, we later find out that she's been getting visions from Randall Flagg, telling her to leave him and go to Las Vegas. But um, up until up to this point, she's just like, "Oh no, another man!" And he smells her because he's disgusting. Um, Mm-hmm. I just feel like the show really wants me to hate Larry and it's doing it successfully because the guy playing Larry <laughs> is good at being gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both like, are you real? I have a gun. I can point it at you. And she, I like that she holds her gun with her hand on top of it. Like she knows how to bounce recoil. So she clearly mm-hmm. fired a gun before. That's character development to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then they go around uh, New York and they get, they go to a fancy restaurant and she cook, he cooks them some steaks he says, how do you like, how rare do you want it? And she says, well, I love this line, walk it through a warm room. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so yucky. <laughs> 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 
And he brings their stakes and they uh, are ready to go through the Lincoln Tunnel and start heading elsewhere. I don't think they have an objective necessarily yet, at least together. They just like, let's go places. Yeah, their initial objective is just let's get out of New York City because it's it, there are still some like people who are alive um, and are kind of like shooting around and stuff. And Larry also says the city is going to start smelling really bad because of all the dead bodies pretty soon. Right, 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 yeah. right. I like that in uh, in Nick and uh, his friend's plot line, they can just take bikes everywhere and travel is pretty easy because they're in the south or they're in the Midwest or in the de- they're in the desert. And it's like, oh, we can just go places. Mm-hmm. But for Larry and Nadine, it's like, well, we have to go to the Lincoln Tunnel because it's the only way out of the city. And it's full of cars because <laughs> industry built up around this place. This is, again, where I feel like you get the implication that King like doesn't like big cities very much. Um, mm. you want to get out of them as quickly as possible. They're congested by technology and uh, empire and decadence and whatnot. And meanwhile, in the in the outside world, you can be free and in real America. Mm. Mm-hmm. But the Lingy Tunnel's full of bodies, and it's completely pitch black. Nadine says she's afraid of the dark. Uh, Larry's like, "Come on, why you got to be so shitty?" And he like is rude to her. She runs away, uh, and then he feels really bad. They come back together. Uh, this stuff goes by pretty quickly. I just really liked them being friends for five minutes before they hated each other. I yeah, more me of that. too. I, I'm really interested to see where Nadine's character goes because mm-hmm. it's – I'm not certain whether – because in her dream with the dark man, she's like, yeah, we're going to get married. And I didn't know if that was kind of like a she was under the thrall of Randall Flagg in that moment in her dream or if she really is like a conspirator of his. So I'm I'm curious to see what her fate uh, becomes later yeah. in the story. I think she's under his thrall. I yeah. also think, you know, I was talking about how like this is a during the apocalypse situation. And I would like to sometimes there's something appealing about being in an, a, a huge empty city alone. That's the, that's why The Last Man on Earth is funny. And that's why these scenes are so appealing is you're like, oh, these places that are so usually congested with life and other people are just mine mm-hmm. now. I can just exist here and this is great. Mm-hmm. But again, the show doesn't really have time for that. So they go out into the woods or something. They're clearly about to do the nasty. And then she's like, no, I don't want to. And then Larry like punches the tent. She goes back to sleep and Randall's like, get away from that asshole. And for once, I found myself agreeing with Randall. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, she should. But don't. Not. And then he's like, but get with me, though. And I'm like, no, let her, <laughs> let her <just> exist <laughs> for five minutes. Yeah. Um, and so Larry, she leaves him. She leaves him high and dry in the middle of the night and then left alone. He keeps driving or keeps. Uh, I guess he's driving. He gets a car at some point. He must have. Yeah, I think so. Because he makes it all the way to Des Moines, Iowa, which. You know, when they're camping, they're in Pennsylvania. So, you know, you could do like a map tracking where all the characters go. This is a lot of travel for Larry, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But in Iowa, he meets uh, uh, Lucy and that kid, Joe, who she's like, yeah, so this kid's feral. Uh, He has a knife. Uh, And then he runs at him and he's like, hey, (laughs) did this kid get his rabies shots or what? Because Larry sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know what the deal with Lucy is yet. Do you have any opinions on Lucy yet or Joe? I feel like we don't really – we just know that Joe lashes out at Larry, but that's all we know. And Lucy just seems like another normal lady. <laughs> I don't know. It's, they're they're both mysteries right now. I love question marks. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no – I that's one of the things I definitely have not spoiled for myself. So 
uh, the last paragraph about Joe on on a wiki page here <coughs> says, uh, after a certain point, Joe is not referenced or seems to exist in the narrative at all. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Just so drop him? I think like they do something with him and then they're okay. like, uh, and the book just like kind of tapers off. Oh, weird. Yeah. We're getting introduced to like tertiary quaternary characters at this point. So I don't right. expect like Lucy to become essential. Right. Um, or Joe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do want to see Larry uh, get to Las Vegas eventually. I think he's going to end up going to Vegas um, on the way to Nebraska or something, or he's going to be swayed. That has to happen like next episode. <clears throat> yeah, something's going to happen with him pretty soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we'll find out. And then it's time for the best plot line of the episode. Can I say that? Is that crazy? Uh, convince me of that. <laughs> <laughs> also the most yikes plot line of the episode yeah okay 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 yeah nick andros meets patrick star from spongebob square no bill fagerbake <laughs> plays uh this guy tom who has an unspecified mental disability uh which makes him oh okay i j- literally just said it's the best plot line and now i'm already exhausted by it yeah <laughs> why did you say that because i like nick a lot i think that rob Liss is a good rob Lowe role Rob because he's because he's not talking. Oof, get him! And yes, <laughs> uh, he uh, what leads to them meeting each other? No, he's just walking along and he sees all these mannequins he and he's him. like, "Yeah, why are all these bodies here?" And then Tom is like, "I laid them there so it would feel like normal again." So yeah, Tom is supposed to just be that he's got suspenders. He's quote unquote stupid. Um, this is a really offensive stereotype of of mental illness that you know i talked about like the whole thing with nick being that like they got an undisabled guy to play him or an abled guy to play him and it's like Mm -hmm. you did it again you put two of them in the same plot line like yeah this one feels a little bit worse um it doesn't go so far into the like i always think that the peak of bad offensive regressive uh disability stereotypes is rosie o'donnell in uh, that movie with the bus or whatever, that terrible, terrible movie. Oh, sure. Yep. Um, I'm not even going to look it up. But I'm always like, that's the peak of how bad it can get. And this is like kind of up there. You know, he's talking slow. He can't mm-hmm. read. Um, mm-hmm. He seems like he's a Southern quote unquote hick character. It sucks. Um, it's It doesn't yeah, make it better to br- me that they make him lovable. Sorry, that's what I wanted to say. It doesn't make it better to you. you correct. Say. Correct. Yeah, because... What, what else are they going to do? I mean, it's the same thing as the Rob Lowe character where he his moral purity just makes him more of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And then also there's this running thing where Tom keeps saying that everything is spelled M-O-O-N. Yeah. And it's like, is that funny? Is this a joke? I don't understand what you're trying to do here. Do you think they do a super a super dumb joke where at the end he points to the moon and he goes, M-O-O-N, that's moon. And then that's the, his last line of the show. I hope that's actually what happens. Sure. Yeah, why not? That sounds great. I but would love that. Bad joke. Badly written character. Yeah. I can't even put this on the show. Because like, what do you, okay, let's try and be productive here. What do you okay. do with a character like that? Well, how do you portray that in a modern story? I think you remove some of the like really ridiculous stuff, like just take the M O O N thing out. Yeah. Completely. Uh, I don't know that I'm the authority to speak on like how else to handle that properly. Magellan. (laughs) I just, it's just sort of like, 
it feels like the 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 pro here's the problem right mm-hmm. is the story doesn't seem interested at all in exploring what it means to be that character in this context it's more just like a gimmick of who the character is yeah and that's the issue that i have with it the mmon thing turns it into a joke also he becomes comic relief which really sucks right like is it valuable then to have them both meet uh julie who is this kind of awful character pretty awful character um who she he bumped she bumps into nick in the convenience store as he's trying to buy pepto-bismol or get pepto-bismol and she's like, I haven't seen a man in years. Let's have sex. And he's like, uh, no, <laughs> hmm. I don't know you. And then she meets them. And because they reject her advances, she's like, all right, well, you're both our words and slurs and whatnot. He actually, Nick, when describing Tom to her via his notepad calls. He uses that word. Yeah. True. And then she uses like every like traditional slur under the sun for disabled people uh, against both of them. And they very quickly are just like, all right, well, this person sucks. Don't have to deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. But like, what's the value here? That's a chat's uh, sort of uh, slogan today. What's the value in Julie being like this? I guess maybe if I had to make, make an English class attempt, mm-hmm. humanity is just as bad when there are like 10 humans. They, that Like an apocalypse doesn't get rid of the evil of humanity. Sure. I, I think my issue is just that Julie, the only like real character trait that she has is that she's horny Mm -hmm. and she's mean. And then she becomes presumably is going to become one of the bad guys. And so it's like, why? Why are you making that one of the characters? Like what a boring reason for someone to be evil is it's just like a lady that wants to have sex. You could have handle that in a much more interesting empathetic way because it makes a lot of sense that she's alone in an apocalypse she sees rob Lowe and she's like i would like to have sex with you (laughs) of course of course she would because it's rob Lowe and it's the only man that she's seen in however long um but then i think i just have an issue with like that being conflated with her being mean you know Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm um i guess when i when i said earlier that this is my favorite plot line in the episode it's more that uh i do like seeing human characters like this uh and i don't think that everybody needs to be a good person i think it is actually valuable to have julie be terrible but it's specifically the like cartoonish way that she's terrible that really rubs me wrong um like she just screams at them and then pulls a gun out and tries to shoot them and laughs at them and mm-hmm. it's very much the story just trying to be like, maybe he, maybe she's the crazy one all along, which is like fraud in its own right, dog. Like, mm-hmm. I think you can do this story a lot better if they had a little bit of time to spend with Julie where she, they're like, oh, she's okay. She's just traumatized and hurt because of everything that's going on. And, you know, maybe she holds some horrible biases, but she keeps them to herself for the most part until something happens that kind of breaks her like that. But here it's very much yeah. like oh, your R-word friend is outside? Well, screw him. We can have sex in here. He won't even notice. She says, like, he doesn't think the way we do, which is just mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. And I think often in chats, like, I listen to old chats episodes and be like, oh, we kind of, like, criticize this character, but we don't realize that that's the point. And I totally understand that that's the point of, of Julie here. I just think that this is not very often how 
ableism manifests itself. Right. right. I was going to say that's the issue is that it's really, it's not actually, it doesn't, it doesn't actually function in the story to criticize someone acting the way that Julie does Mm -hmm. because the way that she talks about Tom is so on its face despicable that it's like not new to us that you're not supposed to talk that way. And so instead what it does is it shows us like, wow, actually Rob Lowe's character is really great because he's not having sex with this really hot lady because she's so mean. Isn't he awesome and a good friend? Mm -hmm. And it's like, what a lazy (laughs) way to make that characterization happen. Um, Also, he does slap her. And he slaps her. Yeah, that too, which is not so cool. So wrap this all up in some like charged sexist imagery um not i guess you know and 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 then you have a a cocktail for a really difficult and frustrating scene a couple of scenes to to swallow and to analyze because it's just like it and it's not a coincidence that like this woman who you know wants to be sexual yeah is is hit like that those things Mm -hmm are misogynist on the same wavelength as this each This is what other. you get for being horny. This is what you right. get for being sexually desire, d- desiring. Right. Um, it, it then becomes a question of, does Stephen King and company want you to think that that's what makes her evil? Um, I sort of think so. Is it the fact that she's ableist or is it the fact that she's a woman? Is it the fact that she's horny? Is it a combination of all three? Where does her being on the side of evil kind of land? Because yeah. uh, as a woman, and as one of very few women on the show, she's not given much to do other than suck, <laughs> other than become hateful, <laughs> right. Uh, hateable right away. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bummer. And then she just has a gun and shoots them, and they're like, "Let's get on our bikes and run away from the the scary lady and go to the other cool lady." Mm-hmm. It's a mess all the way down. I do think though that the Nick plotline gets kind of weird from here on out um, because. They're just riding their bikes, trying to go to Nebraska, and they meet mm-hmm. that guy uh, in his truck. Um, I have his name. His name is Ralph. They meet Ralph in the truck. Mm-hmm. Did, did Ralph have the family in his truck also, or did they just also um, run to him? I'm not sure. I don't think he could have fit them, because he gets all three. He gets Tom and Nick into his truck in the front seat. So at some point, they arrive in Heming, uh, Hemingford Home, Nebraska. They meet Mother Abigail. Pretty touching scene, though, uh, where he nick she's like oh nick you're here and he hugs her and she doesn't have to hear anything from him to know that she care they care for each other there's some there's some warmth here i like this and the fact that it's all about her cooking and she's like i gotta get the chicken and make sure the kids can help me when they come here um this is like the good kind of americana that works for me Mm -hmm. a little bit sure how brief brief as it is and then very quickly uh tom is like friends with the other person's kid and she's like look tom it's it's a parade and he sees and it's a bunch of motorcycles Mm-hmm. Do you think that in the universe of the stand, people who ride bikes are good and people who ride motorcycles are bad? <laughs> I, um, well, no, because Franny was riding a motorcycle. But so was Harold. Harold. Okay, yeah. But also yeah, Glenn was like, you know, if we get a motorcycle, you got to get a sidecar, you know, for Kojak. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget about the dog. Yeah, if you have a sidecar on your motorcycle, then you're good. I yes. Think. Oh, that makes sense. So sidecar motorcycle means your your pure morals and everything. Mm-hmm. So we're going to rebuild is what I think is going to happen in this show. I think that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. 
but what does rebuilding mean? What does defeating Randall Flagg and his Nate, his miscreants mean? What happened to the Rat Man? Is Nadine going to get pregnant? Find out the, all of this and more next time <laughs> on the stand. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, any straight notes on this episode, Magellan? Um, let me skim. Skim quick. There is a lot of male shirtlessness in this episode. Yeah, like, especially in the, in the like the visions, ton. right? Yeah, Gary Sinise is shirtless. Rob Lowe is shirtless. The guy who plays Larry is basically shirtless. Or no, he's shirtless. Every man has, takes his shirt off in this show. I don't think Tom is, does. Huh? Tom? Yeah, I guess not. Um, but a lot of them do. And it's just like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Why not? I I laughed really hard at when the family meets Mother Abigail and the little girl is like, Granny, are you the oldest lady in the world? And the mom goes, Gina, that's not polite. It's not. Oh, my God. Yeah. Classic Gina. <laughs> and she's like, huh, I probably. I think I am. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Is she? Um, 106? 106, yeah. Who's the oldest person in the world at this point? Older than that. Today, yeah. I'll let you know. I'm curious. Yeah. Oldest person alive. Kane Tanaka, who is 118 as of January 2nd, 2021. Holy Damn. crap. That's cool. That's awesome. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, that was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have too many other ones. Again, I love the needle drop at the top of the episode. Super curious now that we actually have people at uh, Oklahoma, uh, at Nebraska, like where they're going. I think she said we're going somewhere else. She actually said we're going. They're going to Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Only take leave it to Stephen King to take your fantasy epic into the Midwest, <laughs> like of all the places uh-huh. to go. Well, at that choice. point, you're just in the West. Or rather, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we're finding our fortune out there. But Magellan, um, that's what I got. Do you want to tell me what we're watching next time on the Stand Chats? Sure. Next time, we're going to watch the second half of 1994's The Stand miniseries, and that comes in two parts. The first is called The Betrayal, and the second is called The Stand. So, get excited for that. I will get excited for that, Mattel, because I'm excited to finish this kooky, spooky story. I hope that Randall Flagg uh, loses. (laughs) (laughs) Or not. Maybe he turns out he's the good guy and, and that Mother Abigail was lying all along. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, but let's take it to the plug summit, John. Do you want to do the plugs for this one? Sure. You can get in contact with the show in a couple of different ways. You can email us, chatspot at gmail.com, with your questions, comments, concerns, uh, suggestions, uh, just saying hi, whatever you want to say. You can also follow us on Twitter at chatspod and DM us there if you would like. If you would like to support the show, well, you could just do that by spreading the word, telling people about it posting a nice review on iTunes or your podcast listening platform of choice. Uh, and if you'd like to support us with money, you can do so over at patreon.com slash chats where we publish thrice monthly bonus content that you can access at $3 a month. You could also just pay us a dollar a month and get some, you know, less frequent stuff, but you're chipping in a dollar or you can support us at $5 a month because you love us and you want to do that. And we appreciate you if you choose to do so. Uh, we stream on Twitch sometimes, so you can check over there, twitch.tv slash chatspod. And I believe all of our streams, past streams are archived over on YouTube. Is that correct? Yes. 
Okay, so if you missed a stream but you want to see a stream stuff, uh, we keep all that stuff over on YouTube. You can just search ChatSpot and you'll find it. Can I, by the way, thank our $5 patrons? Uh, yeah. Thank you to Stefan, K, 6D, Ryan C, Fenden, Marcus H, Kat NM, uh, Grace L, Andrew L, Pat and Nick C for being the Chatsy Watsy Deluxe Comfort Plus that keep this show going, baby. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank You're you all much. amazing. We love, we love you. Yeah. Um, but but that's that. We like to end episodes with little media recommendations or experience recommendations to tide you over between now and next week. So, Alan, what is your chatsum for this week? Meow. My chatsum was actually recommended by uh, $5 patron and good friend of the podcast, Nick, uh, of the Brothers at Infinite War, a term that we lovingly refer to him and his brother Pat as. Uh it's Invincible, the Amazon Prime adaptation of the 2003 Robert Kirkman comic, well regarded as one of the better superhero comics of that era. Um, mm. The miniseries, or not the miniseries, sorry, I'm in the stand mode still. The series, which is also is is pretty short, but just aired, it finished its first season, uh, is about a, a young superhero kid uh, who eventually takes on the name Invincible, and he's the son of a superhero, Superman guy named Omni-Man, uh, mm. and a human mom. Uh, and so he's developing his superpowers as a teen and it's a growing up story, but there's, it's kind of got that thing where like a lot of modern TV does where it's like, there's a little bit more going on here. Hmm. So what I will say is that it's pretty violent guys. You should, that you should go into it, even though it's an animated car- cartoon, um, it gets quite like very violent, um, after a certain point, it's more about like what it really means to live in the real world as a superhero than like your uh-huh. standard Marvel or DC stuff, but not to the grim dark degree of like a Zack Snyder Justice League or something like that. Um, I've watched literally one episode of it and I really enjoyed it. I was surprised by the the sort of big twists and stuff. Um, and I'm really curious to watch more. And I'm really watching it because I want to see what the meme with J.K. Simmons being like, uh, think Mark and what all that. That's from the final episode of the show, guys. If you've seen that meme online, you're going to have to wait to, <laughs> to do that. <laughs> So definitely check out Invincible. It just wrapped up. It's on Amazon Prime if you have that. Um, and uh, it's a pretty good time. Najon, what about you? What's your chat on? I've been really enjoying two YouTube channels as of late that I'd like to recommend. Uh, they're both former Vine guys who in the past few years have uh, become commentary YouTubers, which is a way that they describe their genre I think other people describe it that way as well. Um, It's basically they make videos about things on the internet, trends or individual people, TikTokers, YouTube celebrities, whatever it is, um, and and comment on on all that stuff. Their names are Drew Gooden and Danny Gonzalez, um, and I'd recommend checking out their videos, especially the ones that they've made together. Those are good kind of entry point uh videos i would say and yeah they're they're uh great sherpas for millennials <laughs> to sort of guide them through gen z mm-hmm. culture that's how i would put it mm-hmm. but yeah i uh enjoy their content quite a bit yeah i find it fun and entertaining oh Majan, you already know it thank you very much for being the rock to my hard place. Thank you for being the Franny to my stew. Thank you for being the the Randall flag to my mother Abigail. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode 
of the stand chats. You can sit now. <laughs> you may be seated. Please be seated. 